Voyage. This podcast contains discussions of prisoner of war experiences and suicidal ideation. Listener discretion is advised. My dear Susan, if you're reading this, I'm gone now. I'm sorry for the way I could be at times, but I want you to know that you brought me so much joy. Just seeing you made me stop and realize where I was and how lucky I was. There's so much I want to say, but I don't have the words. I just never had the words. I hope you know. I think you do. There is nothing I've ever been more certain of than this. You will go on to lead a nice life and be a good person in this world. I wish I could be there to see it. I'll have to settle for looking down from the clouds. With love, your father. I was born when my dad was 40 years old, so that was in 1960. So that was a good while after he had been back. Um, he didn't marry until he was 37. He was supposed to be a boy. I don't know if you remember the, the song, The Boy Named Sue. That's what I've always kind of thought of myself as, as the boy named Sue. My earliest memory of my dad we had moved to Massachusetts at one point. Um, I remember him as we were traveling up there. I was, I was not even two. And he had built a bed for us in the back seat of the car. And I remember him doing that. Um, I remember him some up in Massachusetts. I remember quite a bit like when we were three. I remember his, his nightmares he used to have you know, learning, learning how to, um, to wake him up gently. You know, I, w I was three, four at that time. And that, I think it's kind of amazing that you can learn to do something when you're that age. Um, I was always proud of my dad for what he did. I can remember bragging to my friends when I was like three and four, well, you know, my dad was in World War II, you know. Early on in my life, you know, he would work. He'd come home, he'd go to bed, you know, he was working. Just all the normal stuff that a father did when he worked. He came home, and but later he did become disabled. He was very, um, very quiet. He liked to spend a lot of time in his room. He loved his soap operas. <laughs> so we used to talk about that quite a bit. He would go like to our high school football games, and stuff, but yet he was not one of the fathers that would go outside and play uh, wiffle ball in the streets with all the kids. He just didn't do that. He loved his cars, loved his new cars. He was, he was very territorial. Every time we moved, he would put up a fence, which I did also. And I talked about generational trauma there. <laughs> and, and my daughter does too. One of my daughters does too. First thing she did when she bought her house, she put up a fence. When Charles returned from war, the world he returned to had changed. When he came in, they came in through San Francisco. Um, he was in Letterman General Hospital for, for a while. I guess then they went by train to um, West Virginia, and he was in White Sulphur Springs Hospital for, for a long time. He did get a leave of absence at one point, and then they just kind of discharged him. 
when he was over there, both his grandparents had passed away. The day that he actually came home, one of his sisters asked to be excused from work. And um, the guy wouldn't let her. He goes, no, he goes, you can't leave. So she quit so she could see her father. And one of his other sisters used to walk every day at lunch to come home to see if there was anything from Charles, is what they called him, to see if there was anything in the mail from him. It was, it was very difficult for him adjusting when he came home. There was, you know, they just, they just let him go. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, really no follow-up. They paid him a few hundred dollars, I think, for his captivity. And then they tried to come back on his mother saying that she was overpaid for something for like $2,000. Like, you're kidding me, you know? <laughs> Here's this man who's been through the worst possible things and you're trying to collect the debt, you know? It's just, it, yeah, it was just amazing that they, they would even try that. Susan has kept a lot of these documents, which we reviewed during the making of this podcast. They had to um, sign a gag order saying that they wouldn't talk about what happened to them through um, the press. And I think my dad extended it further to his family because he would not talk about it. You know, I mean, you had to like pull at him to get anything out. He just he just wouldn't discuss it. He eventually became a coal miner. He also worked in Cleveland. Um, he worked for a tool manufacturer in Jamestown, New York. And that was basically it. I mean, it was just a lot of, a lot of adjustment. And I think that was very hard for him because he was always a worker. He, he, he loved to provide, he, he loved to work. I'm sure that was very hard for him not to be able to, to um, keep a job. Well, I mean, as, as most of them came back, most of them had some trouble with alcohol. I don't believe they were alcoholics. I just think it was a way for them to soothe what they had gone through. I mean, they just weren't given any kind of skills to be able to cope. I mean, that's the only way they could cope was, was to drink a little. He'd, he'd come back, he'd become very agitated. Um, his family said he came back a changed man. And I'm sure he did. You know, he left a carefree young young kid ready to see the world and you come back and you're this shell of a person. One time when he had been out drinking and for, I don't know if they, he got into a scuffle with someone else, all of a sudden he started running from them and he thought that the Japanese were after him. So he ran and he ran and he ran and he finally hid under, I think it was his sister's porch. And of course they found him. But I mean, that just must have been terrifying to think after you've been through all that to come home and all of a sudden think you were being pursued by these people who had treated you so cruelly all these years. Sam Coleman also had thoughts on this subject. I have plenty of opportunities to think back in my life at how callow I've been, you know, really clueless. My father had a friend who was a golfing buddy. Uh, this was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, so we're talking the World War II generation. And my father sometimes complained that his friend, he just, he didn't do any drinking, he had a really bad stomach, he had trouble holding down his food. This guy was a prisoner of war of the Japanese who was captured in Singapore, and he lived. And if I'd known, and I'd met the guy, and I'd say, holy cow, 
we've got to take care of you. You know, and I tell my father, stop griping about him not being able to drink and having a sensitive stomach. He's lucky he has a stomach at all. It's interesting to see how different prisoners of war reacted to their experience. You know, Kurt Vonnegut, the author, was a prisoner of war of the uh, Germans. It um, inspired his book, Slaughterhouse Five. Uh, my father was not a prisoner of war. He was never captured. He was a uh, B-26 pilot, flew over 50 missions in Europe. And um, to this day, I don't know if he had some of the symptoms of PTSD or not. He loved flying, so he didn't, uh, he didn't have a phobia of airplanes, even though his was nearly shot out from under him a couple of times. But the guy, in terms of temper, he had a really short fuse. These guys have experienced a lot of frustration. And you know, a lot of men, who are otherwise extremely brave in situations of battle, if they're put into a situation of extreme danger in which they have no control whatsoever, they'll be just as scared and just as upset as any of the rest of us and resentful. Um, so that's why it's really hard sometimes to try to pry discussion out of these guys. Despite Charles's PTSD, he was able to find love after returning home from war. Well, my mom didn't come into the picture. Dad was, mom knew of him when he was in the war, but she was also 17, 17 years younger than him. So she knew of him um, through her parents, but that was kind of it. And they didn't kind of really start dating, I guess, until probably maybe 56, 57. So he had been home a good 10 years by then. Oh, I'm sure it was very hard. I'm, but she was a strong woman. I, 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 can't, I can't say enough about her. She was, she was very strong. She, um, she knew how to handle him. She knew when to, to be quiet, to listen, to when to say enough's enough. You know, you gotta stop doing that. Yeah, she was, she, she was a good woman. When um, he became disabled in the early 70s, she just kind of took over everything. She was the man of the house. She was the woman of the house. I mean, my dad had to do nothing. They would tease each other quite a bit. You know, he'd call himself the boss. You know, I'm the boss. He'd sign birthday cards, the boss. You know, <laughs> like, really he wasn't, but he was not the boss. <laughs> they were affectionate, but not um, in a touchy-feely kind of way. I think their relationship, they showed their affection more by teasing each other. He suffered two major heart attacks, which they found out were related to his time in captivity. I guess uh, nutritional deficiencies and stuff had damaged his heart. At one point, he had died and had a near-death experience, and they brought him back. Yeah, but I remember after his second heart attack, they weren't really sure he was going to live. And I remember my sister and I went in one at a time to see him because they didn't know. They gave him 48 hours and we had, and I was little, I was probably 10. And we got to go see him one last time. And then when he came home, I remember I came home from school and I rushed into their bedroom and he just, he just hugged me and just started crying because he knew it was going to be okay. He passed away um, in his sleep. 
they aren't sure if he had a heart attack or if perhaps he had a stroke. But my nephew was sleeping with him that night. They were very close. The two of them were more like father-son than grandfather-grandson. And he came running into my mom and he says, Grandma, Grandma, you know, Pap isn't moving. Pap isn't moving. And then my mom went in and then she found him. For Susan, learning all this about her dad came as a result of a big change in her personal life. I was diagnosed with MS in 90, we'll say 95. And by 2004, I was disabled and thinking, what am I going to do with all my time? So, so I just started going on the internet and I just started researching him. And I mean, this was hours. I would spend sometimes six in the morning. You know, you wake up and all of a sudden you look up and it's like six in the morning. You're like, where did the time go? And then I, I just started joining organizations. I started calling people, talking to people, talking to family members, just to seeing what I could find out because he really wouldn't talk about it. You know, I could have gone to um, conventions and stuff, but it wouldn't have allowed me to research the way I wanted to. My mother passed away about a year or so ago and I'm still going through all her stuff. And I found a letter from I don't know if he if he was with dad over there, but it said that, um, you know, um, dear sir and brother, hope this brings you some Christmas cheer. Basically, these were cash donations from other members of Camp O'Donnell number two. And that was one of the camps he was in. So I'm finding things out all the time. <laughs> As for the Japanese side of this story, extensive war crimes trials were conducted from 1946 to 1948 for many of the Japanese involved in the prisoners of war camps and factories the prisoners labored at. In Linda Getzholm's book, Guests of the Emperor, she notes that General Shiro Ishii, who developed Unit 731, was detained but not tried for his experiments on human beings. He faked his own funeral but was discovered and detained. He successfully concealed his paperwork on the medical team's visits to the Mukden camp by burying them at his family's house near Tokyo. The emperor had actually forbidden the biological warfare program, but Ishii hid it as a subsidiary of a water purification project. Several former POWs got to give affidavits at the trial of a brutal camp staff member, Corporal Ichi Noda, who was known for his severe, sometimes 10-minute long beatings. Noda was given a brief prison sentence and was released early from it. The Shanghai trials in 1946 led to more severe sentences, like that of Captain Toru Miki, who was sentenced to 25 years of hard labor. Captain Joichi Kuwashima was sentenced to death by hanging, the result of multiple Mukden POWs testifying to witnessing him performing beatings, sending sick prisoners to work in the factory, and being directly responsible for multiple deaths. Susan was more concerned about her father than the fate of his captors and wished he would have opened up more about his experiences. Yeah, I, I just wish he would, he would have told me more about what he did, you know, where he was, why he did what he did, how he felt, who his friends were, how he got through day to day. 
and there's none of that. So I can only think in my head what it could have been. I know he mentioned it one time that the only thing that got him through was thinking about his family, you know, and that's kind of what got him through somewhat. But I just, I never had any of that. I just, I would have liked to have known. I guess more the emotional side. I always figured, I, I just understood that I could probably figure out his timeline. But I wanted to know more about the emotional side of it. Susan's father never wrote those letters, the ones you hear at the start of these episodes. She only wished he did. He couldn't have, because they weren't allowed, except for one pre-printed postcard on which the POWs only signed their names. There was no correspondence to the outside world. They had no news whatsoever from the outside world at all throughout their captivity. Like many of his fellow prisoners of war, Charles didn't like to speak about his experiences. Earl is based in part on a fellow prisoner of war who would send Charles Christmas cards every year for decades until his death. The American soldiers stationed in the Philippines who were captured by the Japanese have never really received their due. They felt abandoned by their country after being captured, ignored upon their return, and given little government support for the trauma they endured in their country's name. Susan's hope is that this series can show what these heroic Americans went through and give them their due at long last. And if I could put something else in about the Americans, Americans who come back from Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, the ones that are still around from the Korean War, I think one of their biggest fears is that people won't listen to them. That um, a loved one will say, get over it. Or a loved one will start to listen but then maybe look at his watch or run off and start fixing dinner or something like that. That is just disastrous. You've got to commit to listening. I do remember when the Vietnam POWs came home. They were getting off the plane, and you've seen the pictures of them running to their family members and stuff. Dad was sitting on a footstool directly in front of the TV, just sitting there watching it very quiet, and um, the next day, he had his first heart attack. And I've had an epiphany. I was talking to my son and my older daughter, and we were talking about how the Japanese soldier felt in doing what he was doing. And I said, you know, I said, I've never really thought about that. You know, it was always what happened to my father, not so much how they felt as to what they had to do. And um, I spent a whole weekend working through that, just, just trying to feel how the Japanese soldier must have felt, how they came from. And um, I've never wanted to go to Japan. And I said, you know, I said, I think I'm ready. I think I kind of understand why it was war. You know, it's ugly, it's brutal. But they did what they did because they had to. And, and that's sad because, you know, here my whole life, it's been one-sided where, you know, oh, the Japanese, you know, the Japanese. Well, you know what? They're people too. Yeah.
One of the organizations has a, it's called a friendship tour through um, American Defenders of Baton and Corregidor. You meet with all the officials, you can tour like some of the campsites and they just kind of do a big welcoming thing. And I'd really like to do that now. And before I never thought I could. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I, I could do that. Kind of time to not bury the hatchet, but meet, <laughs> you know, meet halfway. <laughs> kind of came full circle. It, it, it did, and, and my daughter's like, you know, I've been telling you this all along, and you're just now realizing it. And I'm like, well, you know, until it was brought to my face, how I felt, and then me working through it, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I, yeah, yeah. Letters from My Father is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Garrick Dion, and Dan Benamore. Executive produced by Susan Hearn. Written and directed by Dan Benamore, based on the research of Susan Hearn. The novel cited in this podcast is Guests of the Emperor, The Secret History of Japan's Mukden POW Camp, written by Linda Goetz Holmes. Starring Jack Quaid as Charles and John Cahill as Earl. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by Nick Masidi. Original music by Darlis Gonzalez. If you are a veteran in need of mental health support, you can always text or call 988 for the nationwide suicide and crisis lifeline. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, and subscribe now for future episodes.